Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome once again to Madam Perry Salon, the podcast that loves you. I'm your groove mistress, spiritual advisor, and cruise director, Madam Perry, and I am thrilled to be here. And once again, thank you so much for helping this podcast keep going and and for helping it grow as well. Um, you know, now you can access it on Spotify and iHeartRadio podcast. So that's a cool thing because even though the live show like tonight uh, is on Blog Talk Radio, after that you can always find it on whatever your preferred podcast platform is and it's still no cost to download it or listen to it. And that's a cool thing. And um, we've had so, so many fun guests and uh, and I've even had people stop me or uh, in in different places. You know, we had the Marquis Michael Day Bar on, and uh, who is you may know. I think he started his uh, acting career in commercials and uh, in the movie To Serve with Love. Done lots of TV shows. If you watch the show Murdoch, I mean not Murdoch, MacGyver. On MacGyver, he plays Murdoch. Uh, there's a new documentary out about him called. Who do you want me to be? Because he and singer-songwriter Holly Knight co-wrote that song. This, who do you want me to be? You know, the uh, you're my obsession. You, so that's the uh, name of the documentary, as well as the song. Also, uh, he's a DJ on Little Steven's Underground Radio, Channel 21 on Sirius XM. And I was listening to him this morning. Such a positive, positive person. Also, we had Ricky Bird last week. Uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. He um, actually he was inducted into the Hall of Fame when he was the guitarist for Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. And he was on. He is, I believe, he says he's almost thirty years sober, and uh, he's got a new CD, Sobering Times. You know, he does a lot of counseling, and uh, he calls himself the Recovery Troubadour. He is so much fun too. We had Jen Lancaster. Oh yeah, go into the. Um, ophthalmologist office to pick up a pair of glasses and um my fave gal there well they're all great people there but my gal becca shout out to becca because she came and she said she said you are funny and i said who me yeah she goes yeah you're funny which you know i was flattered and she said she'd been listening to the shows on her ride home and that uh one of her favorites was jen lancaster now jen lancaster was on a couple of weeks ago with her brand new book, Welcome to the United States of Anxiety. <laughs> and uh, it's a right. I've been a fan of Jen Lancaster since uh, her first book, Bitter is the New Black. She's got, I don't know how many books anymore, but I think 13 of them are memoirs. And how many memoirs can a person have if you're Jen Lancaster? They're all hilarious. So as far as her fans are concerned, she can keep on writing them. The first one, Bitter is the New Black, was uh, the subtitle or Why You Should Not Take a Prada Bag to the Unemployment Office about how she had this fancy job, fancy place to live and everything, loses her job, loses her car, loses a fancy place to live, and how she dealt with that and how it changed everything for her. And I don't mean it's one of (laughs) – it's not your typical riches to rags, oh, I saw the light story – She's trying to maintain her life as she knew it. So when she's even living in a slum with no car and she sees neighbors uh, with, you know, fern- um, appliances on their front porch, she made up this fake homeowners association and made head, you know, how you can do desktop publishing. She made a letterhead paper and would send to people that it was from the homeowners association that they had to get the washing machine off the porch or whatever. But anyway, it's funny. It's good. And Arden Marine was on Arden Marine from, uh, what's well, from mad TV. Um, I think she was on shameless and she's on Netflix's insatiable. She plays Regina Sinclair. 
Arden Marine was on here. We're talking about her new book, Little Miss Little Compton, which is a riot. And I think if you still, she said that any of my listeners, if you buy it, you'll, she'll give you a bag that she had made for it, a cute tote bag. But, yeah, that's good, too. And as far as me, people have asked how to get the lightsabers, the Madame Perry Salon lightsabers. Well, you have to follow some of my social media and share it and tell other people about it or follow the podcast. And then let me know that you want some pens. Um, I've got some other things coming, like, um, uh, well, I'm going to have some more lightsabers and uh, other little flashlights and a little credit card size sanitizers, just uh, whatever I can think of. And I've also got my CDs, too, the Jennifer Perry Combo CD. So if you like some vocal jazz, I'll send you that. If you don't like vocal jazz but you need a cat toy, I'll send you one for that, too. So anyway, oh, and tomorrow night's guest is Jamie McCallum, and he's going to be talking about his brand-new book from Hachette. I think it's already out. Yeah, it was it was published on September the 8th. I'm still reading it. It's called um, Worked Over. Actually, the full title is Worked Over, How Round-the-Clock Work is Killing the American Dream. And he's, a, uh, he's an award-winning sociologist, and he's uh, really studied this in depth. And just to read from the Hashat site, it says, uh, talks about how we work so many hours now that, you know, there was a time when the labor movements fought to get less hours for people and get weekends off. And now things have seemed to have reversed. People work all the time. And just uh, just reading from the Hashat website, it says, as Jamie K. McCallum demonstrates from Amazon warehouses to Rust Belt factories to California's gig economy, it's the hours of low-wage workers that are the most volatile and precarious and the most subject to crises. What's needed is not individual solutions, but collective struggle. And throughout Worked Over, McCallum recounts inspiring stories of those battling today's capitalism to win back control of their time. So, yeah, that's tomorrow night. And you can go to the hashatbookgroup.com site and download the first 25 pages. Now, tonight's guest has been here before and one of everybody's favorites because I have gotten so many comments from people saying that they loved this guy the first time he was on, and uh, good, got these back, and I am thrilled. Um, he's an author, screenwriter, and uh, so many things. I'm going to go ahead and uh, bring him on in here to the microphone so we can talk about it. I want to welcome back author, screenwriter, uh, former professional baseball player, <laughs> There's not much this guy can't do. Greg Hickey, welcome back to Madam Perry Salon. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm very happy to be back. I am delighted to have you back. And your new book, Parabellum, um, is is quite a thriller. I'm not through with that book yet, but so far, I am I am just I am in it. I am into it. I love it. So, But we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about your new book, Parabellum, some of your other things. You know, last time you came, the first thing we talked about was uh, I just had to know about uh, you played baseball professionally, internationally. I believe, was it Sweden and South Africa? Yes, that's correct. Well, tell us about it. For anybody that missed you the first time, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um so I, I played baseball uh, most of my life, um, played in college at a small school in Southern California. And when I graduated from college, I was very lucky to have opportunities to play and coach for teams in Sweden and South Africa. So I spent the year or so after I graduated from college in those two countries. Um, and my responsibilities there for baseball were pretty much limited to um, playing and coaching in a, a few practices a week and, and playing and coaching in a few games on weekends. Um, I had a, a part-time job, a temporary job when I was in South Africa. So that took up a little bit more time, but for the most part, I had a lot of time to myself. And so that's when I decided I was going to sit down and actually get to work on what would become my first novel. So I wrote, I wrote the first draft. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead, please. Okay. Uh, so I wrote the first draft of, um, my first novel, Our Dried Voices, in that year or so, um, while I was abroad, and um, I really had a, a wonderful time seeing some very different parts of the world, 
um, playing baseball, but, you know, even though I was being paid a little bit, it was definitely not enough to make a living long-term. So I realized I had to come back home to the United States, um, figure out the next step in my life. And that's what I did. But I I had the rough draft of a novel under my belt and I continued to work on it for a few years after that. And eventually it became published in 2014. I would imagine having immersion. I mean, you know, you sound like I get the feeling you grew up, you know, intelligent school. You read, you probably read a lot. Um, But I imagine at such an age, being immersed in other cultures, going from the U.S. to Sweden and to South Africa, that's quite a way to get to learn about a place and people and culture. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It was great. Um, Cape Town in South Africa, where I was um, in, in South Africa, is still one of my favorite cities in the world because it's, it's such a cosmopolitan city. There are uh, influences from Africa, from Europe, from Asia, um, there's foods from all over the world. There's people from all over the world. Um, different cultures blending together. There's a, a very rich history in South Africa with the recent fall of the apartheid regime and the shift from a, you know colonial power to a, a African government. Um, so there's a, really a lot going on there. And it was in Sweden too. I was surprised by how um, diverse Sweden was. Um, you know, you think of Sweden is being tall and blonde and blue-eyed, but <laughs> I played on a baseball team with immigrants from Cuba and from other parts of Europe, and, and um, so it was both really good experiences and really um, great ways to kind of uh, get a little bit more exposure beyond the United States and beyond the kind of the, the bubble of my college experience. I would imagine, too, then as a writer, as an author and screenwriter, uh, and, and of course I do I'm not an author, but um, I would imagine that certainly is a valuable, a lot of valuable experience to have in your toolbox for creating characters and backstories for them. Absolutely, and um, I think really the influence I think is strongest in my first novel, Our Dry Voices, because the the lead up to that premise is humans basically working together from present day to kind of solve all the problems that currently plague the world, curing diseases and solving world, co- world uh, hunger and working against climate change. And, you know, my experience in being in different cultures made me want to kind of incorporate those cultures into this global push towards, towards a better future. So you know, I wanted to make sure that there were people from South Africa represented in making these discoveries and people from Asia and from Europe and from the Americas. Um, so I think that was, so it was a lot of fun for me to write that section and kind of, you know, think about my experiences around the world and how, and how those different cultures could play a role in, in moving humanity forward in my fictionalized vision. Seriously. Let's talk about uh, your brand new book, Parabellum. Uh, I've put out just a brief description on it, uh, about it on social media, but tell us about the book. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for diving in already. I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying it so far. Um, so Parabellum, Parabellum is about a fictional mass shooting at a beach in my hometown of Chicago. So it starts with, the, with this attack, and then it flashes back to about a year before the attack, and it follows four main characters. Um, and it, it investigates how and why each of those characters might be involved with the eventual attack. And the four different characters here. Um, okay, first of all, let me let me something I got to get out from the very beginning. I think one of the things that I just love about re- reading this because I, I don't mean to complain, and believe me, this is this is not a uh, <laughs> this is not a chore intrusion to read Parabellum. But I've kind of overcommitted myself to doing some book reviews for uh, NetGalley and different, and different publishing houses. And so I'm trying to read and catch up. And then I got in Parabellum. So I need to read this before I talk to you. So I'll have some idea of what I'm talking about, which will be a change for me. And I um, started reading it. And the words, your use of language, the words, the way you describe a scene, the way you describe people, their, their conversations, and, and without somehow you give us a feeling of what they're thinking and what they're reminiscing about during the conversation. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how to explain it, but that's how it, 
it reads to me, but it's very cinematic. As I read, uh, I can I can see it. I can see it. I don't have to stretch my imagination to figure, well, how would that happen or how would this? It's, it's just your, your use of language is so beautiful and so descriptive and so smooth that I just feel like I've fallen into watching a movie as I read. And well, I guess thank you, probably, you very much. <laughs> do you hear that a lot, or is that what your intent was? Or uh, I mean, uh, certainly what I was going for, um, one of my big goals with the story was to make Chicago kind of uh, a character in the story. Um, and, you know, I had been to most of the places that are discussed in the story. Um, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with them, but to kind of really get the feel and really bring out Chicago as a city, especially to someone who, who hasn't been here, who doesn't live here, um, I spent a lot of time going back to a lot of the, the sites in the story. Um, so riding some of the bus routes that the characters take, um, stopping by the beach where the, the mass shooting occurs, walking down streets in different neighborhoods in Chicago and, and you know, trying to see what the light was like at a certain time of night and um, wh- where the activity was on a, on a weekend and um, just really trying to capture a feel for the city and make it come forward as a, as a character in a novel. Definitely. And, uh, and the people that have, you know, the specific jobs in there, like it starts off with the people who are, you know, uh, well, loading the bodies from the crime scene and describing the crime scene and the whole thing. Um, you, you give us little bits, like, like, again, like it'll be the camera cutting from here to there. We get little bits at a time, but they're not choppy. They're very fluid. And, uh, but the four people who it says, um, in the description, it says in the year before, for the attack, four individuals emerge as possible suspects. And could you tell us just a little bit about each one of these? Cause I think that it's a good mix. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, each of the characters is, uh, designated by a description rather than a proper name. So there's the ex-college athlete. Um, this is a young woman who, the high school soccer player got a scholarship to play soccer at the University of California, Berkeley, um, was a kind of rising star as a freshman um, and suffered a concussion, a pretty serious concussion while she was there. And um, it was kind of the latest in a, in a series of concussions for her. And this one really set her back. And she had trouble like, going, to, going to class and uh, keeping track of what was going on in lectures and uh, focusing on her homework and, and all of that. And so eventually she decided that she really couldn't keep up at, at college. So she had to go back home to Chicago and kind of figure out what was going to be the next step in her life. Um, the, ne- the second character is designated computer programmer. Um, he's kind of a, a distant, emotionally detached character. He works for a, a market research company in Chicago. Um, so it, his company basically um, has corporate clients who are looking to somehow grow their, their market share. And he and his coworkers uh, do research on their clients and uh, go through the data and try to give them some information to help them capture a bigger, a bigger audience or a bigger market share. Um, and he, he doesn't really like this job. He, you know, he likes programming, he likes coding, um, but he's uh, pretty apathetic about his work and, and, and really about a lot of aspects of his life, but he's kind of going along and, and um, sort of making the best of, of this situation. Uh, the third character is the high school student. Um, this uh, young man in high school in Chicago um, dealing with some issues of depression and anxiety um, and, and kind of a despondency that has plagued him through most of his life. Um, he's always kind of felt like a, an outsider, like he doesn't fit in, um, you know, played sports for a while, but had to give it up because he felt that he wasn't talented enough. Is a very smart student, um, but when he starts getting put in more advanced classes, feels like he's falling behind um, and re- really struggles with um, kind of his self-esteem and feeling like he has a, a place in the world. And then the fourth character is the Army veteran. Um, so the older man... Um, probably mid to late 30s, who served in the Iraq War, um, kind of an idealist at first when he enlisted when he was in college, um, joined the war, but didn't get to, 
to Iraq until after Saddam Hussein had fallen and um, the coalition forces of the United States and Europe weren't really fighting the Iraqis so much as they were fighting um, these insurgent forces um, from all over uh, Islamic countries that were coming there basically to um, fight against Westerners and kill Westerners. And so he, you know, survives the war and makes it back and eventually he's kind of drifting for a while and then eventually uh, decides to become a Chicago police officer. And the story picks up with him as a police officer after a few years um, and kind of dealing with some post-traumatic stress disorder and um, struggling with what he experienced in Iraq and now his sort of bumpy transition back to civilian life. When, um, what kind of response have you got from a lot of your readers about the story um, and well, the characters? It's, it's been very positive, um, and I, I'm pleased with that. Um, you know, I think probably what I'm, I'm most proud of is that I've heard from different readers say, oh, I can really identify with this character, I can really identify with that character. Um, because none, none of the characters are really that much like me. Um, I think the, the ex-college athlete is closest to me um, in the sense that she kind of reaches a point in her life where she has to give up a sport that she loves. Um, I talked earlier about, you know, playing baseball overseas and then realizing that that wasn't going to be a, a career path for me. And I was fortunate, you know, not to have any serious injuries, but there was a point in my baseball life where I realized, you know, I'm, I'm, this is not a, a viable career for me. I need to step step away from this and pursue something else. And she's going through something similar, but on a, a much larger scale with her head injuries and um, issues that really affect the whole of her life in a really profound way. Um, but, I, you know, I was pleased to hear readers say, you know, the high school student who's dealing with depression came through really strongly because I've never had clinical depression. So he was especially a tough character to write. Um, and, and the same is true of the other characters. You know, I've never... Uh, served in the military, I've never fought in a war, so I don't have a lot of the experiences that my characters have in the story, but I think at least what I tried to do was to draw on some of my own experiences and some of my own personality traits and then really exaggerate them in each of these characters. Okay. Um, I wanted that, that sort of hidden on something else I want to talk to you about. Uh, so I want to take just a short break, but I want to say if you're listening live, because, you know, as I was saying earlier, most people listen to podcasts maybe in their cars when they're jogging or, or doing other things. But if you happen to be listening live tonight, this is November the 10th, and it's 822 p.m. Eastern. I believe it's, what, uh, 722 for you? Correct. In Chicago and uh, yep. uh, what, 523 on the, West, on, yeah, on the West Coast. If you're listening live and you want to talk to Greg, you can give us a call at 646-716-9922. Blog Talk Radio assures me it's a toll-free call in the continental U.S. So 646-716-9922. And if you're at a place where you can't make a phone call, uh, you know, Greg, we've all been there, like you're at a job or something, someplace where you've got to be quiet or you can't make a call, just send me a message on Facebook, either through Madam Perry Salon or Jennifer Maudet. I will be delighted to share your comment or question with Greg. So I am going to take, Greg, just about one minute and uh, for a little message I've got here from someone. And then we'll be right back with more from, uh, excuse me, from author and screenwriter Greg Hickey. Wait a minute. Now I'm still trying to find my <laughs> what I was supposed to. Uh, okay, here it is. Okay, when uh, in about a minute. Here we go. I mean, the world has gone crazy, right? I mean, this whole pandemic. I, I, I don't even know if I'm coming or going anymore. You know what I mean? But the one thing during the pandemic that I found out, right, that was a good thing was the Madame Perry Salon. I made this podcast, right? When you hear her laughing, all you want to do is laugh. Right? When her dog's barking in the background and she's talking to the dog, I'm like, she's going to an interview, and I'm like, this podcast is the best podcast I've ever heard before. You know what I mean? 
Okay, it may not be the best podcast that you've ever heard, but I bet it's the only one where there's usually some dogs barking in the background, too. So, you know, I'm doing what I can for you. Anyway, back here, this is Madam Perry with, of course, you can call me Jen, Jennifer, JP. You know, Greg, you don't have to call me Madam. Um, (laughs) I'm not Pearl Mesta. You know, that was the thing. when uh, You know Michael DeBar, who he is. I do not. Okay. Yeah. So uh, before we got on the air, I was trying to explain to him where the madam for the salon part came from, and I was saying, "Well, Michael, you should know this. It's supposed to. It's like the uh, cultural salons of the past, where there would be a patrons of the arts, uh, maybe a wealthy woman, and she would have um, a meeting that's called a salon, a gathering in her home, maybe once a week or whatever, and there would be musicians and authors, paintings, thought leaders, whatever, all would gather." Um, in fact, it was through a salon where uh, C.S. Lewis met J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, Lewis was a devout atheist, but Tolkien, who I believe was maybe a Methodist or some type of some Protestant faith, uh, did convert him. So, you know, yeah, these things can be kind of famous salons. I said, so this is my version in cyberspace. And so Michael keeps going. This is before we got on the air. He's going on saying, well, you know, you think of a madam, you think of a uh, uh, you think of a brothel, you think of a den of iniquity, you think of a hook. I said, Michael, please, I wasn't fishing for compliments. Lighten up. So, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So uh, we were starting to get into when you were describing all the ca- the four the four main characters that that could be could be possible suspects. And I'm not saying any of them are because, you know, there's all possible means there's always room for a surprise. But I was wanted to talk to you about writing process and the work you do because, you you know, you've written screenplays, you've been writing. And, oh, and excuse me, I did not mention that uh, your first, your debut novel, Our Dried Voices, was a finalist for Forward Reviews Indies Science Fiction Book of the Year when it was published. So that's pretty Impressive, uh, but I was and congratulations. I was reading uh, your website, and if you if you're looking, it's, it's greghickeywrites.com, dot com, G R E G H I C K E Y W R I T E S dot com, and on your website, you have a blog, and it has some great information um, on it. What? One of the uh, posts on the blog page is called "Writing What I Know," and uh, and it leads to you know writers are often advised to write what you know, and of course you know you think of that you think well if that was if that happened there'd be no you know uh, science fiction there'd be no fantasy there'd be no action you know because who has really done the kind of things that happen in Lethal Weapon you know how could somebody write this? But. Um, and even, even um, you know, Jimi Hendrix will say, you know, you use your imagination. You think about the planet Mars, and maybe there's some different people there and different groups, and then they start a war. And then you write a song about this war in this particular area of Mars that you've come up with a whole scenario about. You know, so you, if you write what you know, you won't have that. But you had a very interesting uh, take on that because you said, you know, if it followed strictly, that advice does not leave much material for storytelling. Uh, writing what I know would leave my stories populated entirely by white men dealing only with sports and forensic science and would quickly become dull because they don't address the diverse perspectives of the world. So you go on from there and decide, especially, and, and you take apart each character and say, no, I don't know this life exactly, but here's what I know that can relate to it. And I'm not expecting you to read the the blog post because people can go read it, but I'm fascinated though with how you take uh, somebody that a character you create and how you find um, how you find some sympathy or empathy or ways to understanding or some kind of um, something that I don't know about this I've never done this. However, I know this and I've done that so. Would you would you just sort of uh, elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, thank you for uh, finding that article. Um, 
So I think it was kind of a working from two sides, sort of a, a bottom-up approach and a top-down approach at the same time. So um, take a character like the Army veteran. Um, you know, like I said, I've never served in the military. I've, I've never fought in a, an armed conflict. To me, um, and this is something I've heard from, from veterans who've come back from wars, I think what I imagine must be one of the hardest parts of returning from a war, especially at a fairly young age, you know, early 20s, mid-20s, um, is you've just gone through probably what has been by far the most meaningful and intense experience of your life. You know, you've been fighting for your country, defending ideals like freedom and uh, justice, uh, you know, in some foreign land with uh, people who don't look like you. And um, you come back to the United States and, um, you know, you have to then think about getting a, a regular job and, you know, wake up at regular hours and do the same thing every day and you're sitting at a, at a desk instead of, you know, out patrolling a, a city. Um, and I, so I think, you know, part of post-traumatic stress disorder is not just obviously the terrible things that you might see in a war, but making that adjustment to going back to civilian life. And so in my mind, the Army veteran is kind of like the ex-college athlete. Both of them have had these really intense where they're pursuing something that um, they have a passion for that really motivates them and is a big adrenaline rush. And then for different reasons, they're forced to kind of return to a more normal civilian life. And so that, that was part of my approach for writing the Army veteran. And the other thing I did was realizing that I've never fought in a war, realizing that I've never suffered post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and this applies to the other characters as well, but I, I tried to read memoirs by people who had gone through um, specific psychological conditions like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or depression or um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is more commonly known as CTE. It's the condition that a lot of NFL players get from repeated concussions. Mm-hmm. So in, in writing a character like the Army veteran, um, I read the memoir Soft Spots by Clint Van Winkle, who's a former uh, U.S. Marine, I believe it was a sergeant, but by the time he um, stepped away from military life. Um, but memoirs kind of gave me the right language to describe what was going on with each, with each of these characters and what that was going on in their heads as they went through their experiences and um, had suffered these various psychological conditions. Um, so it was kind of a, it was a joint process of drawing on my own experiences and kind of extending them and manipulating them into what I thought it, it would be like to have these, you know, different experiences sort of grounded in, in my own life. And then coloring with that with some more specific language and uh, language that was particular to people who had actually gone through the experiences that I had not. Mm, yeah, that's true. If you kind of forget about that, there is like a different language, so to speak, even your language and, and uh, different references and understandings of certain words and terms. Right. And, and I wanted to avoid a very um, surface level description of, of some of these conditions. So, you know, I didn't want a depression to be just, you know, this character felt sad and I didn't want post-traumatic stress disorder to be this character was anxious or, or frightened by loud noises or something like that. I wanted to kind of dig a little deeper and, and really kind of feel what it would be like for someone who had gone through those, those conditions. And I'm going to give the name, because you can always go you know, to Greg's website, and this is, it's a great website and, and uh, easy, to, easy to navigate and good information. There's not, there's not, a, not a waste. There's not a bit of wasted space or, or, or text in there. So the book uh, you were just mentioning to Clint Van Winkle uh, was called Soft Spot, a Marine's Memoir of Combat and Post-Traumatic yes. Stress Disorder. And there's another book, because you said it's Soft Spots and Unholy Ghost, two books that helped with my research for Parabellum. So um, Unholy Ghost, uh, what was that book and how did that help you with the character? So that's a really good book, too, because it's, it's written, it's a collection of essays by several different writers, all of whom have dealt at one point with uh, clinical depression. So that, I think, was especially helpful because it's people who are trained writers, so they're used to dealing with language, and they're 
very good at describing uh, their own experiences. Um, and it was helpful because there were several different perspectives on depression. And it really drove home the point that depression is not the same for everybody, that um, different people experience it differently, and it could be more serious for some and less serious for, for others. Um, but that was especially helpful for me because of the very clear language that was being used to describe depression and the varied experiences that were presented in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, you know, I should have asked you this before. Did you want to read to us tonight? Oh, I'd be happy to, sir. Oh, good. Okay. Have you uh, got um, something marked out for us? <laughs> I should have yeah, asked I'll, you this. I'll, No, it's okay. I'm going to dive into the opening scene here. Okay, so this is the very first scene in the novel, uh, picks up immediately after the mass shooting at a beach in Chicago. The heat of the day had lingered into the evening, encapsulating the smells of human death. The absence of wind, uncharacteristic for Chicago, left the like a sheet of dark gray glass nudging the shoreline in slow rhythmic pulses and fixing the stench in place. The loader glanced at his partner. He guessed the other man was a couple of years younger than he was, early 30s maybe. Did you ever play Oregon Trail growing up? Of course, his partner said. Ever since they put a, a computer in my first grade classroom. Apple LC2, the first, first loader said. That's what we had. I don't remember ours. A bulky gray box. It was longer front to back than it was wide. Mm-hmm. Those floppy disks, the big ones, that were actually floppy. If you, held by the, if you held them by the corner, they actually flopped. Yeah. Back before the so-called floppy disks, everyone remembers. The square black ones. With the triangle trunk, triangle trunk missing from the corner. He had learned that his first day on the job. He hadn't seen the other loader before. It was one of his first scenes. He seemed to be handling it all right. Exactly, the other man said. My par- when my parents finally got a computer, I played that game for hours. I'm guessing you didn't have Nintendo. No. Computers were educational. Right. First loader took a deep breath and coughed at the stench. He wondered if the other man was even taking in the smell. A stale, rusty, sour, ammoniatic cacophony of blood and sweat and piss and shit. But you know what I did, his partner said? On Oregon Trail, I mean, grunted as they shifted another body. You hunted. Everyone did. The other loader wiped sweat from his face and looked out at the lake. Over and over and over again. I mean, sometimes I'd play the game out for real try to make it to the end with everyone alive. But all I really wanted to do was hunt. The first loader smiled. And every time it warned you, you shot 947 pounds of meat, but it could only carry 200 pounds back to the wagon. If you continue to hunt in this area, game will become scarce. He zipped the bag. On the count of three, they hefted the body and hauled it to the van. The city limit was one body per van, two at the most which he never understood because the rule seemed like a violation of basic mathematical identity. Today it was two bodies, which still wasn't enough. A pair of company vans would spend hours shuttling back and forth to the snarl of Saturday afternoon traffic to the medical examiner's office. I felt bad for about two seconds, the other loader said. Then I'd hunt squirrels because all the buffalo were dead. It was better than duck hunt, he said. I never played duck hunt. No Nintendo. Right. As they returned to the beach, the sun hid behind the lakeshore high-rises, casting thick bands of light and shadow across the sand, except for where the bands were lost in the spotlights of news teams and the flashing blues and reds of squad cars mounted on Lakeshore Drive or rooted in the grassy swaths above the beach. Down below, liver mortis had set in, blood had pooled, eyes had gone white or crimson. Amid the light and shadow and color, the beach was a haunted house of shrouded mannequins with purple, red, and blue-tinged skin, Ebony blooms of blood and grotesquely distorted features fixed in shock and agony. The first loader unfolded a fresh bag. Were you any good at the game otherwise? I don't know. Remember, it was a lot easier if you were a doctor. Exploring the rivers never went well. But I don't remember how many times I actually survived the journey. Me neither. Isn't that weird, though? Inside the wide police cordon, the scene was empty and silent. Police boats had cleared the nearby waters of the weekend party cruisers. Their cars blockaded Lakeshore Drive. 
planting tape framed the beach and parks, those had now retreated to the beyond, sorry, behind the plastic yellow boundary, leaving behind the remnants of corpses and the scarlet splotched sand and the detritus of the dead. Towels, umbrellas, coolers, frisbees, a soccer ball, floppy hats, paperbacks, sunglasses, unpaired flip-flops. Weird how, the second loader asked. Video game, we're winning or losing, dying, really, was secondary. They spread the next bag on the ground. The bodies had settled wetly into the sand, and the struggle to shift them out of their shallow resting places deepened. Computer game, the other man said. Oh, yes, computer game. He lifted and grunted. Educational. Right. I mean, I could tell you how good I was at other games. Me, too. I can't think of another example where such a minor part of the game was more entertaining than the whole thing. <laughs> the automatic lights came on as they passed the cafe tucked against the concrete barrier that separated the beach from the park, a bulwark of steady illumination against the fading sunlight and lingering shadow. The loader was struck by the precise and incongruous juxtaposition of the scene inside the, ca- the cafe, a handful of tables suspended in time with half-consumed meals and iceless cocktails surrounded by the chaos of broken glass, upturned chairs, and food scattered on the ground. The other loader said, you know they used to shoot buffalo from the train. They fell the bag into the back of the van and slammed the door closed. Who did? The first loader asked. People traveling across the frontier in real life. For food, like in the game. The trains kept going. The buffalo lay there dead. The first loader walked to the side of the van, clocked the eye of the driver in the mirror, and slapped the van twice. The van pulled away, and they returned to the beach. Uh, all right. Thank you so much for reading this. And what a great way to start. Oh, thank you. It's my, my pleasure. Okay. Um, what the, a couple of other things I wanted to ask you, but before I do, I want to make sure people know. Also, when you go, if they go to your website, um, and it has information on your other books, Our Dried Voices, The Friar's Lantern, The Theory of Anything, Parabellum, and Vita, which is a screenplay, right? Correct. There is also, they can, um, I think it can still do this, can download a copy of Theory of Anything, which is a novella? That's correct, yes. Uh, there's plenty of places on my website um, where readers can download a copy of The Theory of Anything. Okay, great. So, so yeah, he's already given you a bonus, you know, whether you've bought anything yet or not. Because <laughs> I think that'll be sort of like getting the sample at the grocery store. You're going to want more. Okay. Yeah, anyway. In any case, it's a free book, so you like to read something for free heck yeah um yeah that's right teaser man like the you know hey i used to be a snake oil hustler Uh, (laughs) that was my name for it actually i worked a cosmetic counter for a long time so (laughs) that's what you do you give them a free sample yeah free sample free makeover do something for them and then yeah so, hey, I get it. It works. Um, so when, um, you know, I know that I've seen a lot of pictures of you. And I know, that, like I said, you, you've done a lot of um, other shows, a lot of interviews. And I've seen pictures of you at different events and bookstores where you've been reading and talking to people and signing books. But, of course, as everybody knows, things have changed this year. And going and sitting at a table or autographing books is not what authors can do right now or or I'll say pretty much any performers, entertainers or, or people at regular, you know, jobs. Um so what have you done, you know, how cuz you're a clever guy, what have you done to be able to uh, reach your audience or reach listeners? Do you are you doing videos or well, what? thank you. Um yeah, I've kind of gone on a sort of mini virtual book tour it feels like um, so every time I release a book, I, I kind of accumulate all the, the knowledge I have from uh, marketing the last book, and it kind of builds up for the, the new book. So, you know, as I was uh, working on um, getting my previous novel out there, I started doing a lot more podcasts and 
when it came time to release Parabellum, I reached out to some of my favorite shows like Madame Perry Salon um, and was excited to kind of come back on to those shows. Um, and then I started uh, reaching out to some mystery and crime fiction shows that would be a little more genre specific to Parabellum um, and did some appearances on those shows as well. And so in the last few weeks, a lot, you know, kind of had been like a media blitz with Parabellum. So that's, that's been fun. Um, and then I, I tried to do a couple of events where I sort of replicated the feeling of a, of a in, in-store book reading and book signing event. Um, so one was uh, through my website, one was through Facebook Live, but you know, I would go on and have a live video where I would read a little bit from Parabellum, um, answer questions from, from readers who could come in on a, on a chat and ask yeah, any questions. Um, and then I would offer to sign books live and, you know, ship them out to readers after, after the event ended. Um, so I don't have any more of those, those live videos scheduled. Um, uh, if you would like to see me in some of those, obviously go to my website. And if you're downloading a copy of Theory of Anything or joining my email list another way, um, that would be the best way to kind of stay up to date with what the next live event will be or the next podcast. Okay, and I suppose if anybody listening who is a podcaster or has any show on a radio or um, do one on, on Zoom TV or something, that um, you can also ask Greg, take you from his website, oh, I, or catch you on social media. Yep, absolutely. Um, and I, yes, I made the mistake when I opened up my social media accounts of not making them all the same name. Um, so I think the best way for people to find me on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook is to either search my name on those platforms or just go to my website and I have links to all my social media there. Okay. And of course, um, as I always say, since uh, most people, maybe if they're listening, they're driving or something or doing something else. I, for all my guests, I always share on all of my social media, whether it's Madam Perry Salon or whether it's Jennifer Perry, I always share links for my guests so that way you can find their websites, find their books, where they're going to be. So if you can't find it, check with me. I'll make sure that you know how to get the book and how to learn more about Greg's other work. Um, and, yeah, and I bet you you see the friend that introduced us, Sherry Rabinowitz, with her podcast chatting with Sherry. Um, Good show. Yes, uh, yeah, I was on her show last week. Um, I think it, the episode just came out. Um, so yeah, it's a, another show that I really enjoyed doing. Um, I think it was actually earlier this year when I was talking about the Fires Lantern. So I was happy to go back on her show as as was yours. Yeah, she's a great fan of yours. So I'm glad she introduced us. Um, Greg, thank you so much for being here. I wish you so much success, and I will also. Um, if you'd like, I will forward you some information on other podcasts and shows. You know, you you okay. may have to go do video, but hey, you're still a good looking. You know, you're a good looking guy. I hope you didn't mind me putting a, a picture of you on Instagram. Uh, oh no, that's great. Thank the you. the gun the gun show, yeah. Oh, I don't know if I saw that one. Okay, I'll still go look for that. <laughs> okay, I think it's like I've got uh, uh, Parabellum, and then you with a shirt on, and I mean, you know, a shirt with sleeves, and then um, a couple of other books, and then you with the um, sleeveless tops. That's why I call it the Gun Show. And okay. uh, so, so you may just have to go ahead and do video. You know, that's <laughs> there. You go, and uh, no, I'd be happy to. Okay. And hey, you've got a beautiful wife. Hey, you may just want to just let her do the reading for you too sometimes. I don't know. You That's may, probably you know, a good idea, yeah. You've got it. Yeah, you guys got a good thing going. You can double team it if you want. So uh, I, I think you've got it made there. Um, I am so excited. And after we talk and after I walk the dogs one more time, because I've already cleaned up all the, the dinner dishes, uh, walk the dogs one more time and get in bed. I'm going to finish reading Parabellum. I am so grateful to you for being so generous with your time and, and coming back to Madame Perry Salon. I am thrilled. I wish you so much more success in this book and that you do. And I've got to tell you something. And I've done this before a couple of times, and people have come back and said, you were right. You predicted. I get a feeling that something else, you know, you you had an earlier screenplay 
and it has, you know, attention. But I think you've got in the next, I don't know, maybe the next year or two, I think you're going to have a lot more interest and attention in your next screenplay. I just feel like it's coming. Well, I better get to work then. Yeah, you better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you better get busy. So uh, I'm going to let you go. I just, um, and again, let check with me for uh, for some other podcasts I can refer you to, you know, sometime later this week. And I'm going to close you. out with my song, Everybody's Got to Swing. Uh, again, Greg Hickey, thank you so much for being my guest tonight. I wish you much success. I know the nicest people in Chicago. It's really a wonderful city, yes. Yeah, I went there about four, maybe four years ago when Book Expo America was in, I think it was the McCormick Center. Mm-hmm. Time. And once the Book Expo is back up again, I expect you to be there with your books. I think yeah. you're going to need to get a presence there. Have you ever been? I have not. Yeah, but I, I would like to do some more live book events and conferences and events like that, so. All right. Hopefully, we'll talk with me you know, later. Within the next few months, we'll yeah. be moving in we'll that talk direction. with me later. I'm going to give you, you know, you know, Madam Perry, I think of myself as anti-mame to everybody, the Rosalind Russell version of anti-mame. So I'm going to, uh, you know, got some info for you. And, uh, yeah, I've got a friend there who's a jazz singer, Paul Marinero, another writer, Kevin Guilfoyle, um, um, an animator, uh, Peter G. There's a lot of interesting people there. So, as I said, I'm going to close with Everybody's Got to Swing. Once again, thank you, Greg Kiki. Get his new book, Parabellum, and then get all of his other books. Greg, thank you so much. Everybody, thank you very much. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.